Amen. Good morning. I believe at this time the kids and youth will be dismissed. So it's fun watching them leave. I don't know what that says about me as a parent, but don't bring your judgment upon me. Um, this morning, I'm actually just, uh, as we get ready to go into the book of James, it's just, I was trying to like think of like a, a frame of mind to enter in. So this morning, just thinking about how it's a blessing um, for us to not only gather to worship, but we're gathering to worship God together. How it's a blessing that we as the people of God belong to God. But I think what we'll see in the book of James and hopefully what we'll see throughout you know, our lives is that this faith that we're in isn't just a, a single-handed faith about us and God, right? So it's a blessing that we belong to God, but the scripture seems to want to remind us that it's a blessing that we also belong to each other. So when we come to gather this morning, we come to gather not just me and God, but we come to, to worship God together. And I think that's beautiful, and I think the ancients kind of teach us this, and hopefully we reinforce this, because that, I think, is why we sing together. That's why I think it's important we hear scripture, but also read scripture together. Because just in the, the power of singing, for example, right, no matter what you're feeling when you come in, it's a blessing to have the sisters and brothers around you and to hear that voice of the chorus, right? And I think we see that in our lives, too, when we're weak. You know, we might have a sister or brother who's strong, right? When we doubt, we might have a sister or brother who can er help encourage and urge us on, right? And I think that's the joy of this life in Christ together. Our society, our culture, maybe even ourselves, always make it about you and God. Like, how are you and God doing, right? But the scripture seems to want to remind us consistently that it's not just about how you and God are doing. It's how are we doing, right? It's not just how are you growing in your faith. It's how are we growing in our faith. There's a semblance in the scriptures that we belong to each other. And that's a firm commitment that we must keep making to one another. Amen? All right, we'll get there. You guys still sound like you're in Lent. I thought it was resurrection, you know? There we go. Yeah. All right, so as we've come through this season of Lent, right, which is this, this season of not just self-denial and self-sacrifice, but it's really a season of solemnity, right, as we look towards the cross or we remember Jesus in the wilderness. And last week we celebrated Easter or Resurrection Sunday where we saw that Jesus not only goes through Holy Week, right, but at death and sin and destruction and injustice and corruption were all defeated on the cross, and when God raised Jesus from the dead, it wasn't just God saying that has been defeated, but it was God saying that new life is possible. The ancient church calls this time between Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and Pentecost Sunday, Easter time. And I love that because I grew up thinking Easter just meant you got a new outfit. Right? Like, I remember Easter Monday, they celebrate in the British colonies in Philadelphia. We celebrated by wearing your best outfit. It was actually a bigger deal than, like, your first day of school, which some of you don't understand because you didn't grow up in Philly. Like, first day of school was big for y'all, but we were depressed going back to school, so we didn't really care that much. But after Easter, it was just like, oh, wow, your mom didn't love you, huh? Hmm, I wish she loved you as much as my mom loved me. That's how we talk. But Easter tide for the ancients is this idea that New life in Christ that symbolized in the resurrection should be celebrated. So if we're going to be in Lent for 40 days, we're going to add 10 more and celebrate this resurrection of Jesus. So as they go through this season, the entire focus is Jesus' resurrection brings new life in Christ. And so as I was thinking about Eastertide and thinking about where God wants to take us next, I kind of settled on this question. It's like, but, but what does this new life in Christ look like? 
And if we're honest with ourselves, right, this is a question of a lifetime, right? This isn't one of those questions you get to answer and then you're done. It's like, what does new life look like in Christ? Okay, I answered it, I'm done. Never have to answer that again, right? It seems to me that in this Christian life, every single day we got to answer that question. What does it mean that I belong to God? What does it mean that I belong to you? What does it mean that we're in this life together? And so as I was thinking about what does new life in Christ look like, or what is this lifetime question that we answer every day, I was led to the book of James. And that's what I think we're going to offer in this book of James. James is writing to a people, to a culture, and to us to answer what does new life in Christ look like. And so that's what we're going to be on for the next couple months. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1. I'll be reading the very first eight verses of James chapter 1. We'll also have it up here so you can follow along there as well. Starting at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Whenever I read that, I want to say, tell me how you really feel, James. And with that, we'll go to prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much that this morning we come to worship together, to celebrate together our God of perseverance, of wisdom, and of faith. God, we thank you that you are indeed the God of perseverance who makes the pathway to salvation possible, who so loved us that you sent your son, who so loved us that you raised him from the dead, who so loved us that you call us to lasting endurance in you. God of all wisdom, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading and guiding us, for living inside of us and transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, for being our wisdom, for being our strength, for being our light. And Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you that you're the God of all faith, our faith is made possible through you, in you, with you, by you. And we thank you that even now, though you're in heaven making it perfect for eternity, that you stand before the Father on our behalf. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning, not only for our faith together in you, but your faith in us and your faith in the kingdom of our God and Father. Lord, help us now to be saints who persevere. Help us now to be people of God's wisdom. Help us now to be people of faith that look like Jesus our Christ. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. One of the most fascinating things I think for me about the book of James is that traditionally the church has uh, ascribed this author of James as the brother of Jesus, which denotes a certain closeness, but I think a closeness that there's a little bit of challenging because the Gospels aren't necessarily nice about the brothers and sisters of Jesus, right? We think there's at least two sisters because in the Greek and the English, it has an S after sister, so there's got to be at least one to be plural, right? But in the Gospels, when it talks about the family of Jesus, we know about Mary and her faith, but apparently during Jesus' lifetime, many of his siblings even didn't believe. And you see that in, I think, John chapter 7, there's a time where they're just like, listen, there's a big festival, Jesus, miracle man. If you're really the miracle man, go do the miracle in the festival. And 
in case you would have any thoughts that like maybe they're saying this because they want to reveal he's the Messiah, James, uh, John 7, 5 is like, no, no, they say this because they did not believe. Right. And I think that's really, really fascinating because the James we meet in James chapter one, even in the book of Acts, is very different because the James that grew up with Jesus didn't believe in him. The James that saw Jesus before his years of ministry didn't believe in him. The James that actually interacts with Jesus before Acts doesn't believe in him. Yet he's a brother of Jesus. So how does transformation happen that this James who doubted, who was a skeptic, who didn't believe, when we meet him in the book of Acts, is the leader of the Jerusalem church. This James is, is the one who, when Peter is saved from prison, he's like, I need you all to go back and tell James what happened, what God has done here. When Saul had been saved by God, met by Jesus on the, the, the Damascus road, uh, changed by the Holy Spirit, when he comes to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is, except Jesus is the Messiah, he goes to James for kind of like a, a Christian boot camp, if you will. I know we're pacifists, but go with me here. Like a, a Christian boot camp where for two weeks, Saul, in becoming Paul, is taught by James. How does that happen? How does someone who doesn't yet believe in Jesus become such a great leader? Well, Paul gives a clue in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, you know what? When Jesus came back in this Easter side season, when Jesus came back and he showed himself to hundreds of people, he revealed himself to me, but he revealed himself to James. And so then you start backtracking a little bit. And I think there's room for grace here for James because you realize that like, huh, when we have doubt in God, God still believes in us. When we are skeptics, God is still working on us. Even when we don't believe, God believes in us. And that should give you grace because apparently God can handle your doubts and God can handle your questions and you can be the brother of Jesus and still not get it. And there's room here for grace because even last week on Resurrection Sunday in the epistle of John, we read that the disciples themselves, even after the resurrection, they weren't sure what was going on. So God seems to be okay with this idea of not just doubt, but this idea of not getting it all, right? Like, take a deep breath, right? God doesn't expect you to get it all. God doesn't expect you to perfectly explain it all. But God does expect you to trust God. And so James becomes this great leader. And I love that you see this because part of the transformation before the resurrection, and I think this is a key point because I think there's another grace here too. Jesus is the God of the universe, right? Jesus lived in love to show us what God looked like. Jesus was perfect, and Jesus didn't come from a perfect family, right? Like that should give you grace because a lot of us are like, well, my family's this and that, and we just can't do this and that. Jesus is God, and his family wasn't perfect, so give yourself a little bit of grace. And you know how we know this? We know this because even as he's dying on the cross, remember that scene, right? Jesus is dying on the cross for the sin of the world. He looks down, and it's not James that he chooses. It's not Jude, another brother, that he chooses. It's not his sisters that he chooses. He looks down and around, and he says, John, my disciple, look at Mary. She's now your mother. Mary, look at John. He's now your son. Jesus doesn't choose his own half-brothers and sisters. He chooses a disciple to take care of Mary. So again, give your family and yourself a little grace that your family's not perfect. Apparently, God is okay with families that aren't perfect. Apparently, God can still work in families that aren't perfect. 
So we see this disconnect between James and Jesus, but after the resurrection, after Jesus reveals himself to James, after Jesus comes to him in the flesh, James is transformed. And you see the transformation here in verse 1 of his epistle when he says, James, not the leader of the Jerusalem church. James, not the all-powerful Jew of all Jews who's leading you Jewish Christians. James, not even the brother of Jesus our Christ, but James, a servant of God. We lose something in that though, right? So the, 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 the Greek translation of that word servant is doulos. And so the original transform, uh, tra- transformation, the original translation of doulos was slave. So you'll see some old translations will say, James, a slave of God. But we live in a Western setting where, you know, like some of us aren't too okay with saying, I'm a slave for you, right? I'm a slave of God, right? Like, so we realize that, like, there's something missed in doulos. So then we thought we, we evolved and, and graduated and be like, well, it's this idea of serving God, right? It's this idea of, like, serving and being a servant of God. But even that misses the point of doulos because a doulos wasn't just a slave or a servant. A doulos was someone who woke up every morning and said, I surrender to the master's will. And everything I say, everything I think, everything I do will be for the master's will. So that's why James isn't just saying, I'm a servant of God. He's saying, I am one who's been so transformed that every single death with every single breath, I will work for God's kingdom. I will work for Jesus, not my brother, but Jesus, my Lord and Savior. And everything I do will be for him. And Jude, who's another brother of Jesus, right? When he writes his epistle of Jude, guess how he identifies himself? Not as an early church leader, not as the brother of Jesus, but as a doulos of Jesus Christ. So James humbly invites all of us to say, what does it mean to wake up every day to say, I serve at your will. I serve the master's will. I surrender to you, Jesus, and I will only work for our father's kingdom. That's how James begins. James, a doulos of Jesus. And his audience are believers in the diaspora. Now, this is interesting and fascinating because there's, there's, there's two levels of not only persecution, but oppression that's happening in this story, right? James is writing to a people that we have to kind of take ourselves back there. The Old Testament understanding of God was that one of the greatest blessings that God can give you on this earth was the land, right? The promised land. He took you out of Egypt. He took you out of slavery. He took you out of bondage. He gifted you the promised land. James is writing to a people who have not only lost the promised land for generations upon generations, but even though they're back in their land, they're occupied by Romans. They're occupied by Romans who could dictate everything from how far they're allowed to walk to what they're supposed to pay in taxes to what land that they might have owned for generations now belongs to Rome. And so he's writing to an oppressed people who are living in their own land as strangers, exiled in their own land without power. He's looking around and saying, we are an oppressed people, yes, but we still belong to God and each other. But then it says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So he's not just talking about all Jews, right? So the first level of, uh, of occupation or first level of oppression is Jews against, Ro- or actually Romans against Jews. But he's writing specifically to Jews who had accepted Jesus as the Savior, the Messiah of the world. 
So now you have a second level of oppression of who he's writing to, of people who've lost their land, people who've lost their identity, people who felt that, does God really love us because we've lost everything? But then within that subset is a group that says, no, 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 we haven't lost everything because we have Jesus our Christ. We may not have earthly treasures, but we belong to Jesus and each other. We may not have everything, or do we, because we have Jesus who is our everything. So he's writing to a people who are doubly oppressed. They're oppressed by Rome, but they're even oppressed by their own people. Their own Jewish people are oppressing them and persecuting them. And we know that because this is the generation that saw Stephen, their brother, stoned and killed. And the story doesn't end there for them. Why? Because they had to go and collect his body and bury his body. This is the generation of Christians who had spread out from Jerusalem into the world because everywhere they went, they were tormented and they were under persecution and suffering. This is the people who were running from Saul because he hadn't yet become Paul. And what he was doing was putting them in jail. To these doubly oppressed people, James writes. But he writes with a purpose to say, hey, this faith that we have, this belonging to God, but also belonging to each other, has got to be something not only that we know, not only something that we hold on to, but it's got to be something that we live. K.A. Ellis, who's a brilliant scholar, does a lot of her work in mission specifically. When she looks like, a, when she studied and preached on the book of James, she says, you know, the thing that's fascinating about me with James is that James sounds a lot like his brother, Jesus. And so she invites uh, anyone, she's like, if you're going to read through the book of James, which we're doing for the next couple months, right? She invites us to, to read the book of James alongside the Sermon on the Mount. And she's convinced that you'll see so much of what James is writing is, is, is literally in the Sermon on the Mount. And I find that fascinating because it's another reminder to us that when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, James was doubting. When Jesus was living the Sermon on the Mount, James did not believe. When Jesus was compiling the Sermon on the Mount and saying, this is how I want you to live, James was just like, are you even sure you're the Messiah? Yet the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the witness of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus transformed in all these things that Jesus lived and tried to teach him and now comes out in his writing too. And a reminder to us that not only does our God hold our doubts and our fears and our anxieties and our, 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 our even <laughs> not knowing, right? But God is still able to work through all of them. And that's what God does with James here. So he's writing to this idea that our faith has to not just be what we believe, it has to be where we live. And as we go through the book of James, these are persecuted people who are on fear for their lives, who are on fear for losing everything, who have a theology that's different from everyone around them. They're being jailed. Some are being killed. And what's interesting is James does not write them and focuses only on the persecution. In fact, persecution isn't even what he's worried about. Now, I get it. We're Americans, right? Someone says something mean to me on Facebook, I feel persecuted, right? It's just like, how dare you write on my wall, I'm persecuted. And we have to take a step back and realize that, that that's actually, you know, maybe not blasphemy because it doesn't have to do with God, but it should be ashamed. Like, we should be ashamed if we feel oppressed in America when there's Christians around the world who say the name of Jesus and they're killed. We should be ashamed that when we say something that someone doesn't like or disagrees with, we feel oppressed when, when people who even say, I believe in Jesus, means they're ostracized from their families forever. And I'm not saying America's perfect. I'm just saying you as an American Christian are not oppressed. 
especially if you look at it in light of your sisters and brothers and what they're living through and what they're dying for. And I might be wrong, but no one on your Facebook wall is is killing you for saying you believe in Jesus. I might be wrong, but no one's kicking you out of your families forever and jailing you and torturing you for believing in Jesus. So maybe we as American Christians got to take a step back from that persecution word. But even still, James writes and he says, persecution will come and we'll get there. But he's more worried, not about persecution. And I think this is what speaks to us. He's worried about doubt. He's worried not about persecution, but about Christians being hypocrites, about Christians making idols. He's worried about complacency rather than the persecution that they face. So he writes, I want you to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. And the word he uses there is Adelphoi, right? Those of you scholars see Philadelphia, right? In there, Adelphoi. And you know when you want to feel loved, you go to Philadelphia, right? That was a joke. Some of you are like, wow, Philadelphia really is the city of brotherly love, right? But like we did with Dulas, I want to spend a little bit of time here on Adelphoi. Because when you come into this church and you find out about us, we have this old English word, right? Brethren, right? People are like, I don't know what that means, right? It means Adelphoi. And I think there's something, just like we lose something with doulos if we only see it as servant or slave, I think there's something we lose making Adelphoi brethren. Now, if you think brethren is too, um, um, like, chauvinistic, right? If you think brethren is too chauvinistic and we should be basic instead of B-I-C, we should be the brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not going to fight you on that. But I am going to say that we miss something even being brothers and sisters in Christ. Because what we say as brethren makes us one. As soon as we split as brothers and sisters, we're now two trying to be one. The idea of Adelphoi wasn't just that you're sisters and brothers in Christ, was that you are one together in Christ. You are one body. You are one people. You are one family. You are God's family. That's what Adelphoi was communicating. So for James, the brother of Jesus, to say, greetings, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Greetings, my Adelphoi. Greetings, all of us who are in God's family together. That's what he's trying to communicate, right? Greetings to all the people who belong to God and who belong to each other. And then he starts talking about trials. He says, I want you to count in joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Pastor Linda told me that the the Greek word for many here is poikilos, right? And and it does mean many or or diverse or or various, right? Meaning there's different levels of it. And I think it's interesting. I think she said she did a a Bible study years ago. And in this Bible study, the the author talks about how poikilos, I think if I'm getting this right, um, poikilos reminds him of polka dot, which I'm like, I get that part. Poikilos, polka dot. But the point the author is making it's like, just like, and I know some of you, I got to apologize. You've put away your polka dot dresses, but you haven't put away your polka dot dishes, but we'll talk about that later, right? It's like three people who are like, oh, he's got me. But the idea of polka dot, though, 
was this idea that like not only do they come in different styles, right, but they come in different sizes. And that's getting to the idea that not only are our trials going to come in different waves or different sizes, they're going to look different to everyone else, right? And I think that's the idea that James is getting at. He's saying, you will face trials. And I think that's a reminder to us as American Christians. We, and I'm not going to put this on you, I grew up in a faith, right, where when trials come, it meant that someone didn't believe. When hard times come, it's like, how have you sinned, right? Like when, when, when things weren't as it should be, it was just like, what did you do wrong? And that doesn't seem to be James's perspective, right? He says, no, 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 I want you to consider it joy, not if, but when the trials come. Consider and count it joy when the various trials come. Because to be a Christian means that true persecution will come. It means that true temptation will come. It means that loss, bereavement, loss of people who've gone on or loss of relationship, that will come. It means that fears will come, failures will come, doubt will come, counted joy when they come. And the joy is the biblical joy. We talk about this usually around Advent and Christmas time, right? We say biblical joy is different than how this world defines joy. For some people in this world, joy is delight, right? Like when you see a genuine smile and I look at you and I know you love me, delight. For others, joy is jubilation, right? When you're so happy, you can dance, right? And I'm not talking about people who can dance. Like people who can dance, that's just what they do. It's like breathing. I'm talking about y'all that can't dance and you know who you are, right? Like when you know you can't dance but you're so happy you can't help but dance, that's jubilation, right? But that's not the joy he's talking about. And biblical joy isn't just bliss, right, where you're so happy, like holding a child or grandchild for the first time, right? All those things are semblances of joy. But biblical joy is deeper than that. It points to this idea of perseverance because biblical joy is the joy that says, yes, the sorrow is on me, but it's only going to last for the night because joy comes in the morning. Yes, things are hard and impossible right now. But praise God, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That yes, I don't even know where to go. But praise God, if I take my eyes off of me and I lift them up to Jesus and I live for others, God's got me. Praise God for Jesus, who's the prototype, right? The one who says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and the shame. That's the joy that James is talking about. Counted joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, of many types, of many persecutions and temptations and addictions and afflictions. Counted joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance in some translations get translated as patience. The Greek here is hupomani, right? If you're familiar with Kenbrook, they do this every fall, I think. They call it the Hoopamani 5K, right? Now, me as a city boy and as a black person, don't think it's a good idea for me to be running through the woods, right? So you will never see me running the Hoopamani 5K, right? Like, that's just a lasting endurance I'm never going to do, right? But if you want to do it, God bless you. You know, good luck, right? I will cheer you on from my house. But the idea of Hoopamani, the idea of Hoopamani isn't just that God wants us to suffer, it isn't just that God wants us to be patient, but it's that God wants us as his followers to have a lasting endurance. Because not only are the trials going to come, but if you trust God to take you through, you get to be a light and you get to help someone else too.
Not only would the temptations come, but if you overcome them, God will help you help someone else overcome them. Not only will the hard times come, but if and when you get through, God will use you to help a sister or a brother through too. That's hupamani, right? Not running through the woods like Kenbrook does, but just holding on to God as God holds on to you. Remembering that these temptations, these tests, will only produce this lasting endurance. And this lasting endurance is the lasting endurance that leads to a faith that's more complete. I don't know how long you've been following Jesus. If you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, Scripture says what? Now, today, is the day of salvation. So maybe it's time to shut me up, right? And to do some work with the Holy Spirit and say, right now, God, I've never made this decision. Or God, I'm so far away from you. And God, I want to come back right now. But for those of us who who have been following Jesus for a while, your faith should be about growing. And what that growth looks like is a deeper, more complete faith. Hopefully everyone knows that God loves them. But I pray that you knew that God's love that was for you 20 years ago is even deeper and more meaningful now because you've seen and been through so much that God's grace, which was so good for you five years ago, is deeper and richer now because you've seen and been through so much. And even if it's only been a week, right, that God's grace and love and mercy and compassion and patience and deliverance is richer and deeper for you now than it's ever been. That's why when the temptations come, when the persecutions come, when the afflictions come, when God takes us through, we grow. We move. God taking us through is because the Spirit is working in and through us. And the Spirit is growing us. And I said this earlier in the prayer. Praise God for a Jesus who's not just working on heaven, but is before the Father now interceding on your behalf. That's why we grow. And that's what James wants us to have. A faith that leads to perseverance, a perseverance that enhances the faith. And so James then comes to prayer. And he says, listen, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. And I want to pause here because we're going to deal with doubt in a little bit, right? But I want you to understand what James is saying. Because a lot of people read this passage and it's like, well, James is saying we shouldn't doubt. Mm-hmm. Not quite. James is saying wisdom is a gift from God. Ask and you'll receive. If you desire something that's for God and his kingdom, God will graciously give it to you. We have a God not who's up there holding on to blessings, but who desires to to bless you upon blessings. I remember when I got married, one of my friends was like, I know Shell loves Hank because Hank is poor. And I was just like, listen to me. My father owns a cattle on 10,000 hills. What's wrong with you? Y'all don't believe that? Y'all just like, no, he's still poor. He's still poor, people, but she loves me anyway. It's okay. The point I'm making is simply this, right? God wants to bless his people. And what we ask, God will gift if it's for the kingdom. And so what James is saying is God is a generous giver. So if you ask God in faith and not in doubt, God will bless it. But the key is asking God in faith. 
Meaning the key is asking God, believing who God is. Believing in what God has done and trusting what God has promised. That's how we ask, right? We ask for the kingdom come and the will to be done, believing what God has done, believing who God is, and trusting in what God has promised. And James seems to believe that if you want it for the kingdom and you trust who God is and you believe in what he's done and you hold on to his promises, how can you believe and not doubt? That's what he's saying. But we still got to untangle this doubt thing. Because for as long as we follow Jesus... A lot of us have doubt. And we, some of us have grown up in a faith where to doubt, right, is to sin. Or to doubt means to not believe. Or to doubt means I'm not a good Christian. So I do think we need to unpack that. But in the context of James, James isn't saying to doubt is sin, to doubt is bad, to doubt is something God can handle. James is saying if you're asking for wisdom or you're asking for something for the kingdom, trust God. Trust what he's done. Trust who he says he is. Trust his promises. Don't doubt any of those things. But we are still people of doubt. And I want to tell you something this morning. That is okay. And the reason it's okay, we're going to break down in many different facets. But if you want the shortcut version, is because God is going to look at your doubt. Not as something that keeps you away from him, but as something he will carry you through. French have a proverb that says this, right? One who, the one who knows nothing doubts nothing. And I love that because I tried to learn French in fourth grade. And it was beautiful because I remember coming home and I said to my mother, I was just like, Mom, this is awful. We're in Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, and they speak French. And I was just like, this is awful. The whole day I didn't understand anything. Everything was in French. I remember my mother in her gracious love and perseverance said, okay. You have three weeks to figure out the language part. But in this three weeks, if I see you struggling in any subject, especially math, and struggle in my family, men to beeb at that time, right? Like, so you're not talking about like C's and D's and F's. Like, let's not be ridiculous. Like, you don't want to be shunned, right? Like, this is like a B we're talking about, right? And she's just like, if you struggle, I'll let it go for three weeks. But math, those are numbers. You don't need to read the thing. You just need to know the numbers, and you can figure it out. You don't struggle in math, right? And I was just like, wow, I guess I have to learn French in three weeks, you know? But the thing about learning a language that I find fascinating is this French proverb plays, right? One who knows nothing doubts nothing. Before I tried to learn French, I never thought about French, never doubted French, right? But now you can come up to me and be like, comment tu appel? And I'll be like, hmm, I believe you're saying, what is your name? But are you saying, what is your name? And I thought I got over that in fourth grade. Then I got to ninth grade and I tried to learn Spanish. And then I come and say, Yama. I was like, hmm, I believe you're saying, what is your name? But are you sure you're saying, what is your name, right? Sometimes the more we know, the more doubt creeps in. So even when you're learning the language, you're still not sure, right? And to this day, I can ask you questions in Spanish or French, and it's just like a trust exercise. It's like, and then you hope it lands. It's just like, do you understand what I'm saying, right? And somehow, somewhere, I always understood Jemanj, right? Like, I always understood, like, tengo hambre. Like, when it comes to food, I got that part down, right? But everything else, I'm just like, mm. But the thing about doubt is even when we start to know something, it's natural and it's normal, right? So when you're learning a new language, you see this because you see that, like, huh, 
like, I don't know what I'm saying. I think I know what I'm saying. Or sometimes you have to what? Some of us who speak English as our primary language, you run it through in English. Then you run it through in Spanish or French. Then you offer it up and hope it sticks, right? Like, that's what it means that the one who knows nothing doubts nothing. But you know a little bit, then you doubt a little bit more. So doubt has to be natural, but it also has to be neutral. And what I mean by that is that a lot of us look at doubt as this great negative. It's neutral. And I'll tell you how it's neutral in another different way. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. And there's so many of us who that's what we've been thought. In fact, Oswald Chambers, who no one's going to think is like this mad scientist, right? No one's going to think he has these wild ideas, right? You know what he called doubt? He said doubt is thinking. <laughs> doubt shows that you're thinking about your faith. This is Oswald Chambers, right? Most people who put him in a box is a very staunch, like I see it, it's in the Bible, this is what I do. He says, when you doubt, that just shows you're thinking about your faith. And I like that one because I started thinking about how I doubt. In fact, when I go home this afternoon and I get my car, I will doubt. Not because I'm not a good driver and I'm a great driver, but because I've seen some of y'all on these roads, right? Like, I'm good, but I look over and I'm like, are you good, right? When I get on an airplane to fly, I doubt, not because I'm scared of a crash. If I die, I go to heaven, just pay for therapy for my kids, right? Like, I'll be good, right? But, like, I just hope my, my pilot is having a good day. You know, I just hope he's having a good day. Like, I'm not quite sure. Another one is I am not deathly because I didn't die. My throat just closed up. But I'm very severely allergic to fish, right? But only stuff with gills, right? I don't know why. It's just gills. Like, the rest of the stuff I can eat. So I love seafood. But I doubt, like, when I order my food, I'm just saying, hmm, are we sure you didn't mix no fish oil? You didn't cook in the same gravy or the same oil? You know, like, I doubt. It don't stop me from eating it, but I doubt. But the point I'm trying to make is simply this, right? Doubt is a natural component of life. And so the question for us is, how can God carry us through our doubt? And I just gave some silly examples, but you can go through scripture and find so many examples of doubt. Remember Jesus? No, you don't remember Jesus? That, that was a little scary. I said, I remember Jesus, and not one of y'all reacted. It was just like, who is that Jesus? He sounds so familiar. I believe we're in this house even. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane. We talked about this last week. When we went through Holy Week, we said, remember that Jesus knew he came for the world. He came to die for the world. He came to fulfill God's plan and promise. Yet in Gethsemane, what does Jesus say? God, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure, sure? <laughs> like, is there no other way? <laughs> like, hmm. And he had to have God send angels to strengthen him. And God had to carry him through that doubt. And he had to get to a point where he says, not my will, but yours be done. Remember Abraham, right? The father of all faith, right? Last week, I don't know how often this happened. I was going to try to research this, and I realized, like, it's pointless. Like, two people are going to care, so you could research and tell me. Um, but last week, we had something phenomenal happen in Abrahamic faith, right? Like, so you have Jews who claim Abraham, um, Muslims who claim Abraham, and we Christians who really own Abraham, right? There's a difference, right? They claim we own, right? But all three of them had major celebrations of their faith all last week, Right? The Jews had Passover, the Muslims had Ramadan, and we had Resurrection Sunday. It all happened on the same Sunday or the same weekend. It was, it, was, it was phenomenal, right? But the thing about that is that Abraham himself, the father of all faith, the father of all nations, right, he doubted, right? 
And then this gets to the polka dot thing about how doubt is various degrees. Abraham, I don't know if he ever doubted that God would prompt God and come through with all his promises, right? Like this is a man who literally was going to slay Isaac, not because God is evil, but because he's like, God, I don't know how this fits into your plan. Maybe you'll resurrect him or something, but you'll figure it out, right? I'm just going to do what you tell me to do. This is a man who had faith in that. But when he got to Egypt, he was like, well, my wife is kind of pretty. Like, I don't really trust these Egyptians. Like, eh. <laughs> she's my sister, which is not a full lie, just like a half lie, which is still a lie, right? And then he does it twice. Or that wife, Sarah, remember when they come to her and they'd be like, hey, you're going to have a son. She's like, ha, <laughs> ha. And God's like, oh, that's funny. I have a sense of humor. You will call your son laughter, right? Doubt is normal in the life of the people of faith. Elijah is another one, right? There's this great showing up of God at Mount Carmel where God shows power over Baal, where God moves in this powerful way. And then Jezebel looks at Elijah and be like, I'm going to kill you. And he's like, "Hmm, God, I don't know. They're going to kill me. He doubted. Or Esther. Another beacon of the faith, right? Like she was willing to stand up to the king and fight for her people. But we skip over the first part of the story where Mordecai is like, Esther, they're trying to kill us. And she's like, mm, the king I just saw a little while ago, you know, like if you show up in front of him and he doesn't give you the scepter, he kind of kills you. So like, are we sure this is how it is? And Mordecai is like, yes, this is how it is. Like, okay, I'll go now, right? Doubt is normal in the faith because it's a normal part of life. The difference is, we need to get to a point where we know and hold on to that God can hear our doubt, that God can hold our doubt, and that God can carry us through. Because here's the thing that gives me grace and gives me hope. There's nothing, nothing, there's no doubt you can have. Literally, you can make up a doubt right now, right? Make one up right now. There's no doubt you can have that you're going to present before God and God is like, hmm, this is new. I've been around for, I don't know, a couple thousand with you guys, like, Hmm, walked with the church for 2,000 years, but this one, this doubt that you have, this is new to me. Like, I just got to rack my brain to figure it out, right? There's no doubt you have that God cannot hold. There's no doubt you have that God hasn't helped millions, not one, not tens, but millions of people through. There's no struggle you have that God hasn't healed. The job isn't to say my doubt is bad or my doubt shows I don't believe. The job is for you to take those doubts to Jesus. Because like Jesus in Gethsemane, like Abraham in Egypt, like Sarah with the angel, like Esther before the king, like Elijah on the run, like Paul before when he was Saul, God will show up. And God will not only hold your doubt, but God will carry you through. F.F. Bosworth or Fred Francis Bosworth, you know, was a 20th century preacher. And I love this line that's attributed to him. He says, we need to believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts. And the hard part about this is like sometimes the belief and doubts can kind of, you know, blend in. I believe that God fully loves me. But life might happen and I might not be sure that God loves me. Struggle might happen and I might not be sure that God really cares persecution, temptation, trial, affliction, addiction, that might happen. I'm like, I'm not sure you love me. So F.F. Bosworth will say, no, 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 no. Go back to what you believe, not what you feel. And it's hard, and for some of us it's impossible, but go back to what you believe. God loves me. Belief your belief. Doubt your doubts. Uh, Ethan Southard is a, is a Californian priest. 
and I love this, and he talks about how God meets us, right, in the midst of our doubt. But, but he was talking about faith and doubt, and he was like, I think there's another component that's important for us to hold on to. And what he talks about is Mary and Zechariah. And if you go back, I know it's not Advent, and some of us only sing Christmas carols once a year, but go back to this thinking of Advent, right? Remember briefly about that story, Mary and Zechariah. Generally speaking, God-fearing people, God-loving people committed to God. Angel shows up, right, with a message. There will be a son of promise. There will be a son of promise. God's doing this. God's doing this. They both have questions, right? But what happens after that? Mary is blessed and highly favored. Zechariah is mute and can't speak until the baby's born. So the father says, I think what this shows us is not that God can't handle doubt. Mary had doubt. Mary's like, hmm, I've never been with a man. How's this going to work, right? It's not that God can't handle doubt. The difference for the, 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 the Catholic scholar Ethan Southern was that hmm, Zechariah, when he's asking questions and presenting his doubt, he wants God to answer the doubt on his own terms. The difference is that Mary, when she presents her doubt, she's willing to accept it on God's terms. And that's work for us because we live in a world that says we're the smartest people we know, but also we're the smartest people ever. <laughs> we live in a world that says we are the center of the universe, but also I'm the center of my universe, right? But the idea of doubt is are we willing to submit to God? Are we willing to be doulas of God, right? Submit to the, the will and the kingdom of God. So when God says, are we willing to accept it on his terms? Or do we only pacify our doubts? When God answers them on our turns. Ethan Souther says this, but just the fact that we have doubt, that we have some kind of confusion or, or disagreement or maybe an unfinished or an incomplete understanding, God can definitely come into that space and move us into his vision and his plan for our lives. So I think the last thing I want to say about doubt is that, yes, it's natural. Yes, it happens Yes, it happens the more we know, the more we walk with God. Yes, it happens because life happens and temptations and afflictions and addictions. But God can hold them. God can hear them. God can carry us through. And yes, we have to understand that it has to be on God's terms, not our own. But I think when you look at Jesus, when you look at Abraham, Sarah, Esther, Elijah, Saul, Paul, all these saints of old, even yourself and people in your lives, it's not just going to God with your doubts. It's praying in doubt, praying through doubt, and praying for God to move you in that place. And I think this is what James means by we need to be singly focused and not double-minded. Because for him, the single focus is trusting God even when we doubt. When you doubt, do you trust who God says he is? When you doubt, do you trust what God has done? When you doubt, do you believe in the promises of God? And that's how he helps carry you through. So just like Oswald Chambers who says, doubt shows that you're thinking. Frederick Buechner says, no, 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 no. It's also possible then that doubt can move us to faith. Doubt can move us to faith. Because if you're willing to ask the questions, you have a God who's willing to answer the questions. And when God answers the questions, we grow, we move, we get stronger. And then the responsibility for us becomes to help the next person who's struggling with that doubt, too. So as we think about perseverance, about wisdom, about doubt, I want us to remember these four things. James greets us as a Delphoi, and he reminds us that we live out our faith 
as brethren and not as individuals. That we belong to God as we belong to each other. That yes, you may doubt, but you have the Holy Spirit within. You have the church around you, around the world, in history. You have Jesus standing before the Father on your behalf. You are not alone, but we live out our faith together as one. That not the trials are shocking to us, but they will come. But when these trials come, we must look at them with the joy of the Lord. That's our strength. We must look at them with the promise of the Lord that the sorrow will only last for the night. We must look at them like Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and the shame. We must experience these trials with that kind of biblical joy, but also in prayer. Third thing I want you to remember is simply this, right? And this one's short and easy, right? And I have a life lesson for you. Just go to my office and look at my plant. It's true. We either grow or we die. That's it. We're either growing in the Lord or we're dying. So that's why when we offer these classes or opportunities for us to grow in the faith, this is why we need to get not only serious about it, it's not enough for us to say, I want to go deeper with the Lord. Start going deeper with the Lord today. Because you're either growing in the Lord or you're dying. And my poor plant only needs to be watered once a week. And it's still dying. But we're trying, we're trying. Don't judge me. I feel so much judgment this morning. James is going to set y'all free. They're like, no, he's not. Look at judgmentals. But we're either growing or we're dying. And then we look at our faith, we look at our doubts, we look at this life that we live. Our pledge is to not only follow God, give it all to God, but our trust has to be in God to grow us and to help us. And the last one, if you remember nothing else this morning, we doubt, but we still believe. We doubt, but we still trust God. We doubt, but God is still on our side. We doubt, but God is still carrying us through. We doubt, but our God still holds us, loves us, transforms us, grows us, and makes us one with the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? I'd like to invite up Pastor Hannah and the rest of the worship team. We're going to close um, singing this song. And as we close this song, I'd like to invite any of the pastors in the room up for prayer. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. Or if there's something in the service you want to respond to, we'd love to pray for you for that as well. But as we sing this song, I want us to be reminded that this God of perseverance is the God of not just patience, but the God who says, I will be on your side. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be with you, carrying you through. That this God is the same God who's the God of all wisdom, who will bless you and lives to bless you. And then finally, that this God of our faith is the same God who puts faith in us and trusts us to partner with him and the Spirit to make on earth as it is in heaven. Let's stand and sing together. Jesus Christ.
In a world that's not as it should be, we have a God who promises to work together for our good. In a world that's filled with trials and temptations and addictions and afflictions and so much lack, we have a God who's whole. We have a God who promises to complete the work that he's begun in us. In a world of so much need, we have a God who loves to bless. In a world where we have so much doubt, 
but for God who promises to hold it, to carry us through, and to use even that to grow us in our faith in him. The God we serve is the God whose lasting endurance and patience covers us. It's the God whose love surrounds us. It's a God who gifts us with all wisdom. And it's a God who consistently shows faith in us to partner with him in this world. Our Father God, we thank you so much for your perseverance with us. That though we fall short, you never do. That though we consistently are, are so maligned by our struggles, by, by our sin, by the things that we do that don't bring honor and glory to you, that you not only forgive, but you promise to redeem. And that in your redemption, Lord, you make us new and you give us not only new life, but new life that reflects your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are indeed our wisdom. We praise you and give you all the glory for you live inside of us, for you transform us, for you lead us by your light. And Lord Jesus, our Christ, we thank you this morning that you are indeed our redeemer, the one who not only made the bridge from heaven to earth, but the one who stands with the Father even now as our mediator, advocating on our behalf. So Lord Jesus, our Christ, we pray for lasting endurance. We pray for faith where there is doubt. We pray for strength where there is weakness. We pray for light where there is darkness. We pray for healing and wholeness where there is brokenness. And in all things, we pray for your kingdom come, your will to be done. And we thank you, Lord, for your faith in us. And we pray that we can live this life on this side of heaven and in the world to come completely for your glory. So God, give us the perseverance that we need. Give us the wisdom that only comes from on high. And give us the faith that can not only move mountains, that can not only change lives, but that can push forth your kingdom. Help us today to live lives completely surrendered to our master's will. Help us to live lives that with every day, with every breath, with every thought, with every action, we're helping and partnering with the spirit to push your kingdom forward. In your holy and precious name, Lord, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good week.